morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here, and it is great to be with you. If you are a guest or a visitor, this is your first Sunday, or maybe you've been here for a few weeks, but I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, I, I just want to say welcome. We are glad that you are with us. Uh, we are in 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning, so if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter 3. You can also follow along in your order of service. The passage is printed there. Um, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen how Peter is addressing some specific uh, circumstances in regards to the life of God's people. Two weeks ago, he talked about how all people are to be in subjection to the governing authorities over us. Last week, he spoke specifically of servants and masters in our relationship and our vocational uh, areas. And this week, he's now uh, turning his attention to the home to marriage, to husbands and wives. And as he's been doing this, as Peter's been looking at these very specific situations and circumstances, he, he's been doing it as a way of reflecting to us what it is that Christians, how it is, is that we are to distinctly live in regards to these specific situations. Remember, as Christians, we are exiles. That's what Peter has called us four times in this epistle already. We are exiles. We are sojourners. We're foreigners in a foreign land, and so as we live in this world, as we live under the governing authorities, as we live in our work, as we live in our homes, we're to live in a distinctive way, that we are not to live as the world around us lives, but we're to live as those people who look very different, who live and look like Christians. And so that's what he's going to be doing this morning. He's giving us the context of marriage and telling us, instructing us on how a Christian marriage is supposed to look. And so 1 Peter 3, we'll begin our reading in verse 1. Peter writes, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our God and our King, we do thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you that you have given it to us and preserved it for our good. And we pray that as we come to this, that you would give us clear minds and me, clear understanding, clarity of thought and of word, so that our hearts, all of our hearts would please you, so that the words of my mouth would honor you, and that in every aspect of our lives, we would submit to you, our God and our King. Help us now, we pray, in Christ's name, amen. Well, Natalie Keener is one of the main characters in the George Clooney movie, Up in the Air. Maybe some of you have seen this movie. Uh, Natalie Keener is this young woman. She's uh, a recent college grad. She's working at this corporation. Her job is to fire people. 
She's employed to go around to corporations and fire people on their behalf. And she's this upcoming star in this, in this corporation. She's a rising star. She's energetic and motivated. She has all sorts of ideas and thoughts about what her career is going to look like and how her life in this corporation is going to look. But she also has ideas about what her relationships are going to look like specifically that of her marriage, her future marriage, or her hopeful marriage. She has the idea of what her perfect husband is going to be. And there's this scene where she's talking with George Clooney and one other character, and she's just been dumped. Her boyfriend at the time broke up with her via text. Um, let me just say, uh, important conversation shouldn't happen through text message, so uh, don't do that. But regardless, she's there talking with them, and, and she starts to recount how some of her expectations, some of her hopes aren't measuring up. She says to them, I thought I'd be engaged by now. I thought by 23 I'd be married, maybe have a kid, corner office by day, entertainment at night. I was supposed to be driving a Grand Cherokee by now. That's funny. I'd... Anyway, um, sometimes it feels like no matter how much success I have, it's going to matter. It's not going to matter until I find the right guy. And then she describes the right guy. White collar, 6'1" college grad, loves dogs, likes funny movies, brown hair, kind eyes, works in finance but is outdoorsy. I always imagined he'd have a single syllable name like Matt or John or Dave. In a perfect world, he drives a forerunner and the only thing he loves more than me is his golden lab and a nice smile. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, ladies, women, I mean, that sounds pretty good. Guys, I mean, you're probably sitting there thinking, man, Hey, honey, she's talking about me, isn't she? It's like looking in the mirror, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, we laugh because we know that this, this creation in her mind of her ideal husband is that. It, it is just an imaginary man, right? It's a figment of her imagination. It's a creation that she has concocted in her mind because the reality is, is that, that this man probably doesn't really exist, right? I mean, it sounds all well and good. Her image of what the perfect man would look like, the image of what her marriage would look like. It sounds well and good, but, but did you notice that she's describing the recipe for this perfect marriage, for this ideal mate, what she didn't describe? You see, the ingredients are all about what she desires, what she wants, what she longs for, but she didn't once say what she would bring to the marriage, did she? She didn't even say what the marriage would look like other than working by day and entertaining by night. And whose marriage doesn't look like that, right? <laughs> no, she's not thinking about what she's going to bring to the marriage. She's not thinking about what it is that she will bring to her husband. She's only thinking about her needs, her desires, her longings, right? I mean, that's what she wants to focus on her own happiness, she is doing what Stanley Hauerwas calls a self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole, whole air quotes, and happy. Marriage is about what I want. Marriage is about what brings me my most fulfilled self. And that's what we're sold, not just in movies like Up in the Air, but in the music we listen to, in the TV shows that we stream, in the movies that we watch. 
right? That, that marriage is about finding the right person who will satisfy my needs. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? Marriage in its most ideal form is not some union of drudgery. It's not intended to be. That there should be happiness and joy, but, but this happiness and joy that is found in marriage is found less from finding fulfillment in, in self and more about finding fulfillment for our spouse. It's less about us and more about them. You see, that's the Christian vision of marriage. That there is a union where man and woman, the two become one, and where the wife seeks the good of her husband and the husband seeks the good of his wife. That's what Peter is encouraging us in these verses. A distinctively Christian approach to marriage that is far less about ourselves and more about our spouse. You see, Christian marriage is about giving of ourselves for the sake of the other. And so that's what I want us to look at. How is it that the wife gives of herself for the sake of her husband? And how is it that the husband gives of himself for the sake of his wife? And let's begin with wives giving of herself for him. That's where Peter begins and he tells us that this giving of self begins with submission. That's what he says in verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, before we go any further, we have to deal with that word, be subject. Because I'm sure many of us uh, have connotations of what this may or may not look like. Right? I mean, this is a word that, that our culture bristles against, right? Be in subjection. Now, what's fascinating is Peter is tying this to the verses that preceded it, that phrase, likewise. And he's already said that in other areas of life, we are to be in subjection. We are to submit to the governing authorities over us, to, to our, the, the masters in our places of work. We are to live lives of submission. And all of us are called to live in li lives of submission under the lordship of Jesus. And we're fine with that. But as soon as he applies it to the marriage, now it makes us feel a little uncomfortable. And maybe it makes us feel uncomfortable because we've seen this this principle misappropriated, where submission looks like actually a, a, a lording over, a controlling of a husband over his wife. Now, I'm going to get into what this looks like for the husband in, in a few verses, but, but what we, we need to understand is that when Peter speaks of being, wives being in subjection to their husbands, or as other passages describe it, being submissive to their husbands, that it is not speaking of value or worth. Okay, Genesis chapter 1 tells us that when God created man, he created, them, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and and female, he created them. That both men and women are created in the image of God. And because of that, both men and women have dignity and value and worth. And so we should never hear the call of a wife to submit to her husband as a demeaning call, as a way of saying that she is less valuable or less worthy or less dignified. It is not that at all. It's not talking about women or wives in their being. It's talking about roles and responsibilities. See, we believe that the Bible teaches a complementarian, that's what theologians call it, a complementarian view of the sexes of men and women. That, that while men and women are equal in dignity and value before the Lord, they still have varying roles and responsibilities. That's what Peter is saying when he says be subject 
He's not saying that wives are less valuable. He's saying they play a different role. That they have a different responsibility within the home. And the implication is that husbands in the home are to lead. That they are to lead the marriages and that wives are to follow the leading of their husbands. So that has a lot of implications for the husbands in of themselves. Again, we'll get to that in a few minutes. But for the wives, it, it does look like that, that the husband is to be the leader in the home. And so the way in which wives give of themselves for the sake of their husbands is by submitting to that leadership. And they do it with beauty. Wives, you are to do it with beauty. That's what Peter says in verses 3 through 6. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So you hear how Peter is tying these two things together, the, the adorning of beauty with submitting to their husbands. So what does he mean by this? Well, he's not banning jewelry. He's not banning nice clothes. That's not what he's saying. It's not an, out, an, an absolute ban on aesthetics, right? Like women, we're not going to have a box set up and you drop off all your necklaces as you walk out. That, that's not what Peter's talking about here. Now, in fact, we know from other places in Scripture that that outward adornment is something that sometimes God values, that he, he lifts up, right? Think about the prodigal son story, the parable that Jesus tells. When the prodigal returns, what does his father do? He adorns his son with the best robe and puts rings on his fingers. It's a way of celebrating, a way of appreciating, now, what Peter's saying isn't, it's, it's not about jewelry or clothes, it's about value. Edmund Clowney, the theologian, he put it this way, he says that Peter's talking about the vastly superior value of inward beauty over and against the external. He's wanting wives and all women to see what God values. And subsequently, husbands and men, we're to value what God values. The beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. A gentleness that's not a sign of weakness. Gentleness is actually a, a characteristic of maturity. Jesus himself was called gentle. He was called meek. If our Savior would be called that, how, what, what a wonderful descriptor for God's people to take that on as well. And so, wives, the, the beauty that Peter is calling you to embody is a gentle and quiet spirit, which is a reflection of our own maturity. It's what Peter calls imperishable beauty. I love that. That's imperishable. I mean, we, know all, we all know that external beauty fades over time, right? None of us look the way we did 10 years ago. Right? We all have a few more wrinkles and a little bit less hair. <laughs> and some of that hair is graying, and, and it's kind of a little harder to stay as fit as we once did. <laughs> we know that that external beauty fades. We know that it doesn't remain, right? I mean, even Proverbs tells us this. In Proverbs 31, it says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. That word for vain, it can mean fleeting. 
Beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord, she is to be praised. Beauty fades, but a gentle and quiet spirit that never fades, that's imperishable. That's what Peter's telling us. That's what's precious to God. That's what Peter said. That that is the quality that God lifts up. It is the inner beauty of the wife, of the woman, that God values, that God cherishes, that is precious to him. And so I have to ask us, men, women, is this what is precious to us? I mean, in a day, and and really it is no different today than it was in Peter's day, in a day when we are bombarded by what visions of beauty are from our culture, is this what we value? Is this what we lift up? A quiet and gentle heart. A quiet and gentle spirit. Is this what we say is beautiful and precious? Because that's what God says. That's what he says. He looks at the inner man. Peter is telling wives to adorn themselves in this way, to submit to their husbands in this way. And why? For the good of their husband. Look what he says at the end of verse 1 and verse 2. He says, So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So what Peter is indicating is that in this community in which he is writing that there are women who are married to non-Christians. And so probably what happened was that, was that they were married and then the wife converted and became a believer. Or maybe they started attending church and the husband fell away. He rejected the faith. And so the wife is, is the, the believing spouse now in this household. And so what Peter is telling them is do not, do not abdicate your faith. Do not turn away from it. Do not try and convert your husband with your words, but with your conduct. It says live before them. Live before them with, with purity, with respect, in the hopes that your husband would be one to the faith. Now this is very appropriate for his culture because in this time, wives were expected to adopt the religious proclivities of their husbands. But Peter doesn't say, go along with your husband. But he does say, live before them as Christians. In the hope, not in the promise, but in the hope that they would actually see your life and be one to Christ. And that's actually happened before. You know, uh, I, I like to cite Augustine from time to time, and rightfully so, one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church, right? One of the great church fathers. And in his wonderful autobiography, Confessions, Augustine talks about the significant influence that his mother, Monica, had over his life. See, Augustine wasn't following the Lord, we know. He led a very licentious life, and, and his mother prayed for him and cared for him and loved him, and Augustine was one. But in chapter 9 of the Confessions, Augustine talks about the influence that Monica had over her husband, Augustine's father, who was not a believer. In fact, Augustine's father wouldn't even allow Monica to have Augustine baptized as a child. And this is what Augustine says, writing to the Lord, his prayer to God. He says, she, being Monica, served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him to you, speaking to him of you by her conduct by which you made her beautiful. At the end, when her husband had reached the end of his life and time, 
She succeeded in gaining him for you. What Augustine's saying is that by the very way in which Monica lived before her husband, he was wooed to the Lord. He was one to God. That, that the Lord used the conduct of Monica's life before her husband to bring her husband to himself. That is hopeful, isn't it? You know, some of you, some of you women, are in relationships where your husband does not come to church and where your husband is not walking with the Lord, and, and yet your faithfulness before him is a testimony to the beauty of the gospel. Your, your purity and respectful ways honor Jesus. And we pray that the, the conduct of your life would be what the Lord would use to woo him back. Marriage is a union where wives give of themselves for the sake of their husbands. This isn't just for wives that find themselves in a relationship where their husband is turned away from the Lord. But this is for all wives. You see, Peter said, some of you may be in this situation. But even for those of you who are not. That you live submissively and with beauty for the good of your husband. But it's not just wives living for the sake of their husbands. It's also husbands living for the sake of their wives. That's where Peter goes in verse 7. And he says that husbands are to give of ourselves for her by understanding. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. So to live with our wives in an understanding way means at least a couple things. One, it means that if we're going to live with them, we actually have to be present with them. That should go without saying, right? Like, that's duh. Except we look at our lives. And oftentimes our lives aren't filled much with a lot of presence. Right? I mean, we, we give of our time and our energies and our money to, to lots of things. And I have to wonder, like, are we giving as much energy to our wives as we are to our work? Or to our hobbies? Or even to our kids. Now, now, I'm not saying that we should shun all these other responsibilities outside marriage, men. That's not what I'm saying. That we have these responsibilities. We can't shirk them. But, but I have to wonder, are, are we working more to save our wives at the ex or work, working to save our jobs at the expense of losing our wives? If we're going to live with our wives in an understanding way, it means we need to be with them. And it means we also have to know them. It means we have to understand them. It means we have to spend time with them. It means we have to know their dreams and their desires. It means that we know their fears and their worries. It means we know their hopes. It means we listen and ask questions and engage and pursue. It means that we get PhDs in our wife. That we know them better than anyone else does. It means that we're going to give time and money. And sometimes we're going to have to be willing to put our pride on the shelf for the sake of the good of our wife. That's what it means to live and understand them. But it also means that we cherish them. We give of ourselves by cherishing our wives. Look at the end of verse 7. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. 
since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, I know some of you didn't get past that phrase, weaker vessel. <laughs> what is Peter talking about? He, well, he's not talking about emotional depth. He's not talking about relational awareness. He's not even talking about intellect. He's not saying that men by nature are superior in these areas of life than women. That's not what he's saying. Every single commentary I consulted, every single one, said this is speaking about physical strength. That women are weaker in terms of physicality, right? And, and we know this is by and large true, right? That, that men are born with physical structure, right? Our body size, our frame, our bone structure, our muscles, right? They, they allow us to be stronger. And what Peter is telling us is that those who are stronger are to use our strength to honor those who are weaker. This is why it is inappropriate for us ever to use that call to submit or to be in subjection in inappropriate ways. To use our place of authority or strength to subjugate our wives or to put them down or to use our strength in an inappropriate way goes against, completely against Scripture. We are to honor them and protect them and cherish them. That phrase, to show honor, it, it's a word that can be translated to treat as precious. To treat as precious. That she is precious because of who she is. She's my wife. She's precious because of who she is. She is a co-heir of the grace of life. That's what Peter says, that, that wives are, are co-heirs of the grace of life. That in of itself affirms the dignity of women, doesn't it? That they're worthy, that she too was bought with the precious blood of Christ, just as her husbands have. And so, friends, husbands, we're to honor our wives and to treat them as precious, to recognize who she is and what she needs, and to be willing to sacrifice for her. In fact, this is so important. This fellowship that we have with our wives, that Peter links it to our fellowship with God. Did you see what he said at the very end of verse 7? He says, live this way, understand her, cherish her, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Oof, ouch. That's a scary thought. He doesn't say it to wives, did you notice that? But he does say it to husbands. What he is indicating is that if we do not cherish our wives, if we do not care for them, that the effectiveness of our prayers will be impeded. That our fellowship with God is uniquely tied to our fellowship with our wives. And so husbands, we can't just be willing, but we need to be ready to proactively give of ourselves for the sake of our wives. So last month, Kat and I celebrate our 15th wedding anniversary. 15 years, it's pretty cool. Ah, thanks. Clap, applaud for Kat. <laughs> 15 years, and it's been really fun. I'm very, very thankful that uh, the Lord brought Cat uh, into my life, right? I love being married to Cat, and I think she likes being married to me. I'm pretty sure she does. She told me that she does. But so we celebrate 15 and 15 years, and, um, but a number of years ago, while we were still living in St. Louis, Cat told me I could share this, by the way. She said it was fine. She said it was okay because I don't come out looking very good, so she was fine with it. <laughs> A few years ago, we're still living in St. Louis, 
We'd been married for a number of years at this point. We had all three of our children. And we had fallen into what I was calling a rhythm to our marriage, but in reality, it was a rut. It was a rut. We were simply coexisting. Things weren't bad. Like, we weren't fighting. We weren't yelling. We weren't screaming, right? Dishes weren't being thrown. But we weren't growing. It was a rut. It was a rut. And, and I was completely oblivious to it. <laughs> I thought things were great. I mean, you know, I wake up, we eat breakfast, I kiss her goodbye, I come home, kiss her hello, we eat dinner, we watch some TV, we go to bed. I mean, it sounded like a pretty good, good relationship. But it was a rut. And in my, uh, in my ignorance of where we were in our relationship, Kat had to come, and she said to me, Penny, I, I think that we need some help. I think we need some help. I think we need to go talk to someone. I think we need to see a counselor. And of course, since, you know, I'm the sensitive and in-tune husband that I am, I started looking for counselors and finding to right now. Of course not. That is not what I did. No, I said, counseling? We don't need counseling. Are you kidding me? We're fine. Okay, maybe we're in a little bit of a rut. Maybe things aren't going exactly the way they should, but, but we just need a date night every once in a while. We need to get away for a weekend, and, you know, I'll, I'll get up early with the kids one morning. You know, it, it'll be fine. We're going to be great. Don't worry. Counseling, please. And that's how I led. And as the a gracious wife that she is, she followed and so a few weeks after that, I'm talking to uh, the pastor who married us, who at the time was living in Atlanta. I'm talking to Randy on the phone, and I'm, I'm relaying to him how things are going and the conversation I had with Cad and how, you know, we're just going to be fine and we don't need to worry about this. It's not a big deal. And, and Randy says to me, Penny, I, I'm sure you're going to be fine. But do you love her? Do you love your wife? I said, of course I love Kat. I mean, I just explained to you how we're going to be fine. And for goodness sakes, you were there when I took our vows, right? And I put the ring on her finger. I mean, you've seen love. Of course I love her. It's a silly question. He says, well, do you want to understand her deeper? Do you want to honor her and cherish her? And again, I'm like, Randy, what are you, where are you going with this? Because of course you know I do. And he said, then you need to listen to her. Because she's telling you that if you're going to understand her and cherish her and love her, you need to do this. This is what she needs. This is what you need. And so then I started to do a little bit of self-reflection. And I realized that my resistance to asking for help or inviting someone else into our lives was my own fear. That if I was to do that, that I would find out the ways that I wasn't loving her. And I wasn't cherishing her. And I wasn't understanding her. But if I was going to do that, I needed, I needed to give of myself to her in this way. So I picked up a phone, and I made a call, and we saw a counselor. And we were fine. Husbands, for the sake of your wife, if she comes to you and says, we need help, I need more of you, I need someone to enter into our lives together, 
don't be obstinate like I was. Say, things will be fine. And listen to her. For the good of your marriage, seek to understand her. For, for the sake of your wife, care for her. For the sake of your relationship with God, cherish her. Husbands, we're to give ourselves, even when it may be hard to hear the things that are said, we're to give ourselves for the sake of our wives. For the good of our wives, we, it's not something that we have to do, it's something we get to do. And wives, you get to give of yourselves for the sake of your husbands. In The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis's wonderful low book, it's my favorite of his works, in the chapter when he deals with marriage, he speaks of this relationship of a husband with his wife. And he's speaking specifically of husbands, but it applies to both men and women. And he says this, he says, This relationship is most fully embodied, not in the husband we should all wish to be, but in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion. Whose life is most like a crucifixion because crucifixion is the most profound giving of oneself for the sake of another. That is what a marriage is supposed to be. A crucifixion because in the cross, Christ gave of himself for you so that you would be his bride. Christ gave of himself to the point of death. He gave of himself by associating himself with rebels and sinners and drunkards and gluttons so that we would be his bride. That is what marriage is supposed to be like. A crucifixion where we give of ourselves for the sake of the other. This sacrificial, self-giving love is the model of marital love. Or as Karen Jobes puts it, it is to understand as the resolve of one's life, one's entire life, to live totally committed to the well-being of one's spouse in every direction. It is a crucifixion. It is wives and husbands living and giving of themselves for the other. Because we're co-heirs. Because Christ has done that for you. Because we are the bride of Christ. And so people of God, husbands and wives, give of yourselves. Give of yourselves because Christ has given for you. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you, Lord Jesus, did give of yourself. That you did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but you took on flesh and you lived a perfect life and you bore our sins so that we would have life that we would be made your bride, that we would be cherished. And so I pray that our relationships, our marriages, that they would be marked by this giving of self, that they would be marked by giving of ourselves for our spouse, for the glory of God and for the good of one another. Help us to do this, we pray in Christ's name. And God's people said, Amen.